to another episode of Not Your Average Operator with me, Mellon, Paul Mellon McFadden. Sitting in the Middle East, we've got uh, Raf and Mike over in the US. They're on the same time zone these days. How you going there, Mike? Hey, Mellon. How's it going, brother? Yeah, good. I was just uh, getting back into exercise. You know, we've been on the coronavirus lockdown and a bunch of us sort of started in some circuit training down on the rugby pitch. And these guys have been going straight through. And I got down there and it was like the first workout back in the heat. And someone had a little lie down in the grass and watched his mates do a bit of exercise. And I nearly fertilized that bottom left corner of the pitch again. So, <laughs> so I've, got, I've, got two, I've got two in. You know, that heat, it just saps you. Anyway, I'll, I'll quit my, my bellyache. And the second one I got through it, the laughter was diminishing. And I'll see how I go for the third one. What, what have you been up to this week, Raph? Uh, well, so I left home not too long ago, but uh, I, I myself have not been doing much working out. We've been doing a lot of work in and around the house. So I've been doing uh, labor more than anything else. Been laying down a patio, chopping down trees, you know, mountain man things. No big deal. Yeah, 10,000 reps on the bricks, right? How about you, Mike? <laughs> what have you, you been up to? Uh, actually, man, a lot of, a lot of, uh, a lot of reading and working out. So, uh, things are, uh, kind of back in a good cycle. Uh, the, uh, gym here that's next to me is back open so I can get in there and, uh, feels really good, you know, with everything kind of reopening and getting back to semi normal, um, getting into the gym and been doing a lot of reading, which, uh, you know, I'll actually talk about a little bit today with today's topic. Dude, it's funny. You said you've been you said you've been uh, working out and reading. Sounds like you're in jail. Are you Muslim? <laughs> uh, no, it's just, uh, you know, I, I don't know what to respond to that. I think that was a stupid <laughs> comment. So just. <laughs> We're going to move keep, on. Yeah, that's, you're done. Well, because Matt Old Mellon knows. I mean, I've got <laughs> Uncle Albert who, who, who did the same thing for damn near 20 years. Worked out and read. Yeah, yeah, he did. Wow. Shout out to Uncle Albert if you're out there in podcast land. Okay. <laughs> I doubt he is. Much respect. Um, okay. So speaking of uncles, this week we're going to focus in on mentor. Who is a person or who are the three people or so that mentored you? And our definition that we come up with from mentor is you, you'll know them when you think of them because they're the person who had the biggest influence on you and you can see the impact on the trajectory of your life from them. They, they were not there and then they were there and there was a different life that occurred after that. So this week I'm going to kick it off. So you guys might've heard in a previous podcast that uh, my dad passed away when I was 11 and he was, he remains the biggest impact on my life. You know, my mom is like the constant pillar of the family and she raised the four of us on her own, but it's something about the absence of someone that perhaps makes things they said carry more weight or there's a profundity that, can be attributed to them. But anyway, my, you know, my son's now 11. He's past the age I was when my dad passed away. And it's like, it brings home to me how much what we do echoes and it lasts because I think about my dad all the time, especially in my parenting. Like when, when Annie came along uh, 13 years ago, all of this sort of came back. But the, the traits that my dad emphasized was like this sort of, semi old school firm love. So there was 
you know, this is a different generation than we had now, but like his leather belt would come off if you were out of line. Uh, he didn't smile in family photos. It was like we got one photo of him laughing when he didn't know the photo was going to get taken. He just, that's how he was. He played tennis. He was very fit. Um, but he was really loving and he would do our evening prayers with the three boys. We'd all go to one of our rooms and kneel and do our prayers with him. And Saturday or Sunday morning to the sleep-ins, he'd come and have cuddles with us. And there was really a lot of affection as well, which I think might, maybe was unusual in that generation. So my dad was like this, like firm, definitely firm, the three of us, we were gorillas, my brothers and I. But this firm guidance sort of couched in this loving embrace. And he also had this iron self-control. Like, I think, I, I don't know if I've told this story before, but I remember being, I, was, I must have been about eight or younger. And we had the old house and had the old shed out the, out the back, the garage that wouldn't fit a modern car. And in there, there was all the, the tools that a man accumulates in his life and boxes of nails and, you know, clear glass bottles with clear liquids in it that'll kill a child and stuff that looks like milk and all, all of that whole, the way it used to be, no labels or warnings or anything. And he had a big, massive vice on the, the old wooden table, you know, like everything was covered in a layer of grime. You just, it, it, that smell of like men and working and all that sort of stuff. Anyway, he had his vice and he was doing some work there and I was in sort of watching and I saw him fully hit his thumb with the hammer and it didn't just make his thumbnail go black, it actually split the thumbnail in half and so like blood came vertically out of the thumb and he just turned around and looked at me and just got a rag and wrapped it around his hand and he didn't say anything and he walked inside the house and I think about that like little seven or eight year old Melon looking at him and like he didn't let out, I'd never heard him swear. And I, you know, he was not a military man. So I know, I'm trying to offer up cards here because <laughs> when the pod, when we're not recording, there's a bit more blue language than what we let on when we, when we hit the record button. But um, certainly military and, and rugby, I know that my, my vocabulary is perhaps more limited than my father's was. I never heard him swear. I never saw him drunk ever. I never saw him tipsy. He'd come home on a Friday and he'd have two beers and watch the news. And he just, he was his presence. And if anyone is ever wondering about, you know, whether what we do here matters, whether what's it all for, and that things are fleeting. I've just been thinking about this today when I was thinking about this mentor topic. I only had 11 years with him. I'm 44 now. I aspire to be like him. I think about him all the time when I'm making decisions. And he has been gone from my life for 33 years. So I just put out there for everyone that these little people around, they've got eyes and they take things in probably well before you think they do. And that stuff stays with them. So if you can come from a position of principle, which is what those three things are, you know, like love, firm guidance and self-control, that's a, a person with principles. He selected like a school for us to go to that had those values and those things got passed on. So his values actually sort of came down. So that, so there's my dad, my mentor number one. You know, just, just real quick, you were talking about the hammer. Um, you know, Raph was talking about laying bricks and doing a lot of work. You know, we were hanging out a couple of weeks back and he was laying some bricks down and I'm looking the other way and I just heard this like, you know, this, this loud noise. And I turned and looked and Raph's standing there with his thumb up looking at me. His, his eyes are all welled up with tears. And I just hear, eh, and 
and I was like, it's okay, buddy. You know, like, it's okay to be, you know, like rap sometimes, you know? So I had to pull him aside, like, it's okay, buddy. You know, like, I'm here for you. It, it, was, it was very touching. So, like, when you're talking about, like, whacking your thumb, Raph, Raph's cute little puppy eyes just popped in my head, and I just wanted to share that, you know? So okay. what's, what's, what's funny is that he actually doesn't know that I literally did hit my thumb. <laughs> yeah. I full speed. I was, I, I was just, by this time I was like day four of like, just, you know, setting the, the, the pavers on the ground and I had this rubber mallet and I was getting very, very confident and it was like full force didn't stop whack. And unlike your father with my limited uh, vocabulary, I think the next 10 words that came out were expletives uh, in Spanish and in English. Nice. I went, <laughs> I, I went free cop for a couple times. Um, yeah, so I didn't take it like your dad. I wish I'd met your dad. Maybe he would have helped me be more of a man, but I, in my defense, Soren was asleep, so he didn't hear his dad. I mean, maybe it was just that I was there, right? And, and these memories, you don't really know how accurate they are now. You're like, man, there's a lot of time has passed, and I was a little child who's memory. But, you know, my dad didn't have his best mate there to tell everyone in podcast land about the time that a tear trickled down his little, you know, olive skin on his cheek. Yeah. All right. So after my dad passed away, funnily enough, you know, the three boys, some challenges, you know, my mum there really like a time of hardship, to be honest with you. And I won't go into all of it now, but suffice to say, a few years later, I got into the rugby team at my school and I met a man who left a lasting impression on my whole family. And his name is Brother Francis McCarthy. And he was a Christian brother and he dedicated his life to uh, educating people out of Melbourne. And he was from a, you know, like a, a working class Irish Catholic background. And he, at a very young age, I think 16, he decided he was going to go off and train as a, a Christian brother. And it's effectively the same, you know, they, a life without having a, a wife or family, vows of poverty and obedience and all that sort of stuff. And he, he though also played rugby as a young man. He, he went to Cambridge and got a PhD from that. It's a whole nother podcast there, but he was, in, he was the master in charge of rugby at the school I went to. And so here's young Mellon and his, and his little brother and we're sort of floundering around and he, he knows the whole story about the family, right? Cause he's that kind of man. And he just took us under his wing and he really took us under his wing. And he, he knew that our dad wasn't there. There were times that he would uh, escort my mum to functions so that she didn't have to be alone. And this guy, the, the, the traits that he passed on were humility and service combined with intellectual excellence with his PhD from Cambridge. He had all of that, all of the, the vows of poverty and, and all that sort of stuff. But he also had this real joy. Like he was the life of the party. The three things that kept him going were rugby, social events and red wine. And this guy, like he, he absolutely loved it. He, he would uh, get on the gas and tell stories and recite poetry. And he was just this amazing uh, person. And he also shifted uh, some of those early values that I had around like success is the most important thing in life. And it shifted to fulfillment is the most important thing that there's a breadth you can have in life and a roundness in the life that maybe, you know, it's not defined by a bank account and it's not defined by most of the traditional ways he influence. Anyway, this guy taught in Melbourne. He was in the classroom for 63 years. He finally passed. 
in his late 80s. I think he was 89. But he, he taught his first class was 1944. So he taught boys who went to World War II. And he was teaching all the way through. I think he finished in 07 or so when he was teaching. And my, my son, Michael, is Michael Gordon Francis. He's named after this guy. So my second mentor is brother Frank. Shout out to SKC in Melbourne. And the third mentor I had uh, came along with brother Frank. So brother Frank's the old Christian brother in charge and just the heart and passion and the whole uh, commitment comes first and everything else is second. You'll get the, if you've got the commitment, everything else comes, everything else will follow, you know, just train and go for it. And, you know, everyone's in first and we'll figure out how we do it later. And along with him came this young, uh, I don't want to say the word alpha male, but a real, striving in the business suit and the long coat and the clipboard and he was the head coach and his name is Andrew Gunnis and shout out Andrew if you're listening still there, still with us in Melbourne and he brought this uh, paradigm of professional excellence and he was he was really in the mold of my dad and those two together really filled this gap for my brother and I and uh, they, they led to stuff like me uh, Andrew led stuff in my mind like aspiring to become a pilot that I never would have thought that that was something that could be within my grasp. And then later in life, he went through this whole self-reinvention. He was like, no, I'm not going to be a high-powered businessman anymore. I'm going to be a nightclub DJ and I'm going to open restaurants and I'm going to be a, in hospitality. And he had this whole thing about being real. And when he lived true to himself, maybe he lost a couple of friends, but I'd say that the people that stayed with him were his true friends. So Andrew really imparted this idea of professional excellence onto me when I was young. And then as I got older in my twenties, I saw him totally just change his whole life and uh, shift and have his personal life and his private life and his uh, everything in alignment and a massive change. So these are the three people that really impacted my life in a, in a profound way. And I know that the life that I have as an adult wouldn't have been the same without the three of them. Well, first right. off, I have some strong words for those guys because uh, they ruined my life <laughs> indirectly <laughs> by putting you in this trajectory. So that's I've got I've got some strong words, but uh, that's pretty good, man. I, I'll say in there as well. Like when I married Cherry, um, I'd reconnected with uh, Andrew Gunnis after school. This this whole he was my rugby coach, and it was just excellence, right? Excellence, excellence, excellence. From him, nothing else. He'd sit you in the room and he were doing visualizations as schoolboys about the first tackle. You hear the referee blowing the whistle that we had to get on the pitch. He'd be like, no, everyone sit back down. I haven't finished my thing. They'll wait for us. And he was just like full up. Like, And so the, the school under him that year, we won the, the rugby premiership. It was the first ever winter premiership at the school. I reconnected with him after joining the Air Force and being you know, away from my hometown. And uh, he met Cherry just as we got engaged. And you know, at a wedding, my mum... Brother Frank uh, was unable to travel at this at this age in his life, but Andrew came to Adelaide where we got married and he escorted my mum. So my mum at the head table with my old rugby coach, Andrew Gunnis. So my mum wasn't alone on a really important day. She had someone who effectively was family there with her, you know. So mentors, impacts. Yeah, that's that's a that's pretty amazing, man. It's a great story. And I can it's cool because I can actually visualize half of what you just said, just kind of neat to see, you know, little itty bitty melon running around 
getting uh, disciplined. So I, before I go into my three, I think it's, it was really difficult for me to, to zero it down just to three because the realization I've had over the years is that nothing I've ever done, and I mean nothing I've ever accomplished, I accomplished alone. I've always had help in some form or fashion, even if, you know, again, of course, there's a lot of ind individual tasks in flight school and college that you do, but to get you prepared, there was usually an army of people or friends or family that were behind you, supporting you, building you, and you just have to recognize that. So even though I've narrowed it down to three, I mean, there's hundreds of names that are floating in my head that I think about, you know, that have had a significant impact in my life. So it was very difficult to narrow down to three, but the three that I chose were um, that I, that I know that if, if, and when these people were plucked out of my life, my life felt different. And so that's why I chose them. Um, so the first and foremost, kind of like you, Melon, was, was my dad. So obviously there's significant things that my dad did in his life that have directly impact myself and my sisters and my brother. Uh, Cause had he not done them, I mean, I would be probably in a different country or I may might be in the United States, but I would be a totally different uh, perspective in my life. So kind of like you, kind of like your dad, uh, Papa Espinoza was very old school. Didn't say I love you. I think he's probably said it twice my entire life. Um, hard worker had always put his family first. But there's also a lot of parallels that, I, that I've kind of come to understand between him and I. He and, his, uh, he and my mom struggled a little bit in the beginning of their marriage. Um, I know they came close to almost dissolving the marriage. Uh, again, it was because of him. He was just being stupid. He was having way too many frothies, was finding himself in a bar at times where he shouldn't have been. Um, so close mates of his, which were actually brothers of my mom, ended up basically for the story, I've heard a couple versions, but I think there were some fists and some loud, you know, I mean, some, some words, some strong words, and it's kind of what woke him up. But I mean, again, he turned around and, and really decided to put, you know, he basically became a family man uh, and put his family first. So uh, there's some parallels in that because I know I struggled in my marriage in the very beginning. Um, but now it just, I, I would give my life for, for what I have with Aubrey. So anyways, he, he, he was the thing, I, I realized this, and I've known this for years, he was the thing that basically kept me from being a statistic. So in the neighborhood that I grew up in, which is in Port Wainimi, we lived in a street called Alaric Street. It's no longer Alaric. I think it's called Cuesta del Mar. But Alaric Street in the 80s was synonymous with violence and gangs and like hookers and drugs. And I mean, I was, what, five years old, six years old, walking down this, these streets um, and that was literally the world that I was thrusted into. But the reason none of that really ever, and I think I've told both of you guys, everybody that I knew in kindergarten and middle school, I mean, at least half of the, the boys that I knew ended up going to gangs. It was just, they were your friends. So, I mean, I've been, I remember being asked at least a dozen times, hey, you should come join us. And I mean, a side of me was like, yeah, that'd be cool because you're all my friends. But at the same time, there was that healthy fear that I had of my dad who, who basically told me, you don't come into this house with your pants below your ass cheeks. You're always going to wear a belt. Your shirt gets tucked. Yes or no, sir. And if I ever even think you look like you're a gang member, I mean, there was some legitimate belt whoopings that were coming my direction. And again, just like your dad, these weren't empty threats, right? This was, he was all about discipline and he came from a disciplined father too. So he, uh, he, he meant what he was, what he, what he was saying. So 
But looking back, it was that discipline that literally kept me from falling into the arms and being prey into these these street gangs, right? And and like I mean, literally, I've never. And I was surrounded by. I mean, as a kid, you don't realize how close you were to this. But looking back, Alaric Street was notorious. I mean, it was every night there was police or firefighters or somebody getting carried away with an ambulance. And it was, it was Miguel, my dad, who literally was the only thing standing between me and being a a statistic. So I owe everything I have and everything I've become as a man to to the sacrifice and everything my dad's done. I mean, everything. I, I wouldn't be anything that I am now if it wasn't for him. And again, he wasn't perfect. He had his own struggles, but, and I, I've noticed some of those parallels between him and I, but still, without a doubt, he, he saved my life and he's thrusted me in the direction that, that, I, that, I, that I eventually went to. The second, the second person that really influenced me was a really good friend of mine. His name was Ryan McCluskey. We became fast friends. We were both stationed in Guam. He was a Navy Driver, I was a corpsman. I just left the Marines and went to a to basically a surgical suite as a Navy corpsman. Um, and it was my last year, year and a half in the Navy before I was getting out and going to school. And uh, fast forward, I, I got out, went to college. We stayed, sort of stayed in touch, but this was well before internet was really big. This was, uh, I don't know, late 90s. I, I mean, I, at least I wasn't very much into it. And he just called me out of the blue one day and said, hey, man, I just bought a house in Hawaii. I just got stationed there. You need to come out here and live and be my roommate and uh, let the shenanigans begin. So I just moved to Santa Cruz, getting ready to go into that university, was kind of doing some last-minute classes at a community college there to prep for, for that uni when he gave me the call. So I basically wrapped up that – well, they don't have semesters. They have quarters. So I wrapped that up and then headed to Hawaii – and probably had the funnest year and a half of my life. Um, but there was something very significant that happened when I moved in with Ryan. He was the first person that literally gave me confidence, right? Because up until that point, there was a lot, like on the surface, I was, I was a fun-loving guy. I, I could hold conversations with anybody. But deep down inside, I was very self-conscious. Um, my grades had suffered. I, at the time, I was thinking about pursuing medicine uh, but realistically, I just I hadn't put in the work. And so that was kind of chipping away at my confidence. But it was Ryan who one day we were just driving in his truck. And he and you got to remember, this is a guy 90 percent of the time we've spent drinking and just being complete, you know, flipping idiots. But yeah, I remember him. He said it was like the first father conversation that I ever had. And it was from him. And he said, he said, Raph, you are literally the smartest guy I've ever met in my life. And I'm not just saying that. He's like, you're one of those guys that I know could literally do anything he wants. And I, what, what it, well, it trans, the reason that conversation transpired was I, I had brought up the idea of being a pilot. But again, my self-confidence or my lack of self-confidence was kind of eating that idea away. And he stopped it. He's like, listen, he's like, you could, he's like, not only can you be a pilot, he's like, you should be a pilot. He's like, because you're one of the smartest guys I've ever met. And he's kind of gave me this little speech and Ryan had never really done that before. So, and the fact that, you know, we'd been in the trenches together. I mean, it just, it had such a resounding effect and that's literally what planted the seed. And I thought, and it, it, it wasn't immediate. I mean, it took me a couple of years to get to the position to put in my packet to get accepted and to eventually become a, a pilot. But uh, yeah, I mean, what he did was profound. So fast forward a couple of years later, I graduate flight school 
he, uh, something very significant happened. He ended up uh, getting diagnosed with cancer. It's called Ewing sarcoma. It's a very rare cancer that usually affects uh, pediatrics. And I moved with, in with him for about a year. I put everything on hold, and, and I was his roommate, along with a good friend of ours, which was his girlfriend. Eventually, they got married, Kristen. And, uh, and so I watched him go through all that. And, you know, again, we cl- closest thieves, man. We were just super close friends. But at the end of flight school, uh, prior to flight school, he had given a clean bill of health. He moved to Florida to be with Kristen and just kind of, uh, you know, start a new life. At the end of flight school, he came to my graduation. Him and I drove off. We went down to his mom's house. Uh, his parents were separated, but we went down to his mom's house, Panama City, Florida. And we got in my, I used to own a 1967 uh, GTO, beautiful car. We're driving down this like remote thing, just kind of heading towards the beach. And he just, we never looked at each other. He just said, hey man, they found Mets in my lungs. And I just, I couldn't get myself to look back at him. Because basically he was just saying, I'm, I'm dying soon. And, uh, you know, we just, we, we just kind of went down memory lane and just really, really just thanked each other for everything we've ever done. And to this day, I don't think I'd be where I'm at with my, with my wife, with my son, the profession I chose that, mind you, I never grew up thinking I was going to be a pilot. I mean, I barely survived the streets of, of Oxnard, not joining gangs, not falling to drugs, not, you know, falling into that life. And kind of like you, Melon, it just wasn't in my my wheelhouse. I didn't think it was reached, but it was it was Ryan's belief in me that made me believe in myself. That just kind of that was the first stone that eventually kind of grew my confidence. Uh, and I completely owe my entire life to Ryan. I, I mean, I I look back and I, you know, without getting too emotional, I I really hope that he was around because just for, so you guys can meet him. I mean, this guy was always the life of the party. He was, he, he was a Navy diver, man. He, he was a, he was a, he's a tough kid, but that, that was the second most influential person in my life that I know that completely paved the path for where I'm at. And then the last person. Can I jump is, in, Ralph? Yeah. Can I jump in with a question there? I'm, like we've obviously talked and I, I've heard you talk about Ryan before and I, I, I know the impact he had on you. Would you say that, he he was a guy not given to praise. That conversation you had, did that enhance the impact that it was a guy? You know, like yeah, we all have friends who pat us on the back and, and you sort of sometimes you're like, man, this guy, I get compliments from him regardless of how bad I am and you sort of can devalue what they say. Would it's you exactly say that that, was- is that why that seed went in and sort of like made fertile soil because he was not one prone to it? Exactly what it was. I mean, again, most of our time together was just being drunken idiots, you know, cheering people, cheering each other on, doing completely stupid things. I mean, I've been arrested with him. That's just to, to give you the image. But that was the first time where he literally stopped the thoughts in my head and said, and basically told me, "Stop talking like that. You're you, you're the smartest guy I've ever met, and you know you're." you're, you're basically betraying me by not doing this thing because you're, you're belittling what I know you're capable of. And it was such a profound conversation that I just, I mean, I almost wanted to cry just listening to him, you know, just cause he got so real with me. Um, it was, it was, he was an amazing, amazing human being. I mean, he's, he's a walking contradiction. If you, you know, he's a roughneck in the exterior, but he was, he, he, if he loved you, man, you, you definitely knew about it, right? He always had your back and we've been in plenty of bar fights. Um, 
and the last person uh, is my wife, Aubrey. And, uh, and I, I've told her this before, but maybe not to this degree. I think about how I've evolved as an adult, as a husband, as, as a father, as a friend. And she has a huge part in it. She's probably one of the first people that have really held me accountable for the things that I have or have not done in my life. Um, and I've needed that, you know. Um, she didn't take everything I did for face value. And I think that's why I respect her so much as a person. And sometimes those conversations are really, really hard. I mean, there was gnashing of teeth and there was some hurtful words and that sort of thing. But at the end of it, I think the thing that I took away from her the most is her backstop is that space where she knows that no matter what happens, divorce is out of the question and we're going to work through this. And kind of, because there was times in the beginning of our marriage where I thought, man, we made a mistake, right? This isn't as blissful as I thought it was going to be. But it was her tenacious stance to like, even when things went pretty, she reminds herself, I love you for a reason. And it was, and it, after watching her kind of, because I remember in the very beginning of our marriage, I was kind of maybe like not voluntarily, but maybe involuntary. It was kind of driving us to, to a place where we would potentially get divorced. And I think it was her pushing back to get us away from that. And I think watching her do that countless of times eventually said, wake up, you effing idiot. You need to start doing the same thing. Um, and now I'm in a place where no matter what our conversations are, whether they're good or bad, if I get to a place where like, man, this is starting to upset us. I think to myself, it doesn't matter because I'm, you know, divorce isn't the thing. We're now I'm going to start working towards trying to like, um, to, to see this through, right. To build something. I think I told you before that and that was one of the mantras that, that was born from just being around her, build something, right. Stop destroying things in your life, build something, build relationships, build, build love. And, uh, so yeah, I, I mean, I owe her, obviously we have a son together and I'm in a place that I just would not trade for the world. So she's influenced my life in more ways. And every day I wake up and I realize she's, she's influenced it for the better. She's an extraordinary person. Yeah. Good man. It is funny right, when someone holds you to account, like that's, that's a really powerful gift to give someone. And it takes like cojones, I think is how they say it in the old country. Yeah. <laughs> to, to, be, to be really straight with someone is a gift and it's not comfortable and nobody wants you to do it, you know, and like the commitment of like we're in this and a vow is a vow and my word's been put down here and that that option, there's, there is no other option. There's only working through it. There's something, there's something hugely powerful in that. All right, it, awesome. Yeah, it, you just nailed it. It's uncomfortable, but it's extremely powerful and it's effective and um, yeah. I, I'm I'm very fortunate to have someone like that in my life. A, a respect-based relationship is like, it's just it's the the Saturn V rocket that's going to get that thing into orbit, right? All right, great, Mike. Can we throw over to you, mate? Yeah, uh, Ralph just kind of caught me off guard a little bit, but uh, just what he talked about about Aubrey. Um, Everything that he just said, I do have a person like that in my life. And I won't, out of respect for right now, because it's whatever, but I'll just call her Special K. All right? That's a little nickname. She's, which, she's, is also a trank, which is also a drug where they tranquilize horses with, but that's neither here nor there. Thanks for ruining it, you idiot. No, I thought when you were like, <laughs> you, you were lost for words about Aubrey, I thought there was going to be some banter. That that's, that's, when 
when the record button hasn't that's been played. That's different. Hi, Aubrey. Anyway, yeah. shut up, Brad. Everyone should know that Mike Mike has a thing for Aubrey. It's it's a little uncomfortable here right now. Hi, Liz. Okay. Hi, Liz Boggs. Yeah. So uh, anyway, she is that person for me, and um, that just really resonated with me, Raph, and I appreciate you sharing that. Uh, but I'll get into I'll get into mine. So I kind of broke it into three. One relates to my life. One relates to family. One relates to service. I'll start it off, and I actually just read this before we hopped on here to do this, but uh, Jesus has really changed my life. Um, I make it a point to read a devotional, a daily one. It's actually by Tony Dungy. So if some of you don't know, he was a Pittsburgh Steeler player uh, in the, I believe, 1980 Super Bowl, won a Super Bowl, and then became the coach of the Indianapolis Colts and Tampa Bay Buccaneers, where he won a Super Bowl with Peyton Manning. Um, but he's a very, very religious man um, in this book called Uncommon Life. And I make it a point to read it every day, but I don't read the next day because I want it to kind of be a surprise. And man, if it doesn't speak to me, the one I shared today with Raf and uh, Melon just really spoke to me. So Jesus is a... Uh, is such an inspiration and influence in my life to give me unbiased direction and who I should be as a man, how I should look at life and humanity and uh, how to be my best self. I could go on for a whole day about that, but I just want to start it out with that because he deserves it. The next one would be my mom and dad for family, things that they've taken time. Uh, I've learned tradition being present in the moment with them and them being present with me as a child growing up. What that means is, you know, my mom would always take me to flea markets and spend time with her or, you know, going to do stuff that moms love to do. My dad, we had traditions of fishing and hunting every opening day of buck season, every single year, he wasn't going to work. I wasn't going to school. It was guy time, father and son time. We're going out to go hunting. And it's, it's not about just killing deer. It's, the time you spend together. It's the getting away from life and just being present in the moment, having these type of conversations with your dad, you know, whatever. Um, appreciation, appreciation. Some people grow up without parents or just have a mom or just have a dad. You know, I lost my dad when I was a little bit older, but I had 18 years with my father and uh, I've learned a lot from him. And it's showing me a piece that I want to move on to in my life. And then uh, forgiveness, okay? This story for me, so my dad, my parents were separated for about three years. I lived with my, my dad for a little bit and then I couldn't live with him anymore. He started changing and wasn't my dad anymore to say the least. So I moved in with my mother and uh, he was kind of going wild and just living this crazy life and it didn't make sense. And he really hurt my mom emotionally and everything else. He hurt me too. But uh, I got a phone call one day and he said, Hey, you know, I've been at the hospital getting checked for pneumonia and uh, I need you to come into the house. I need to talk to you. So uh, I went over and he's like, they found stage four cancer in my lungs and it's spread to my bones and uh, it's not looking good. So my mom, being a former nurse, like a residential nurse, she also took care of Alzheimer's patients for like 20 years. My mom has a heart of gold. I don't know 
what this conversation was, but at a point they were like, Hey, we're going to send my dad home to his house so he could be comfortable, uh, before he goes. My mother had such a bad view of my dad for what's transpired that year prior. And my mom went over and had this conversation with my father. I still don't know what they talked about. Maybe I'll know one day, but my mom put everything aside, forgave him for everything, moved in with him to take care of him and make sure he was comfortable for the little time that he had left, which was only about two weeks turned out to be. And till this day, I remember that lesson and I look at my mother and I love her for that because that was something I can't even fathom now, let alone being 18 and, and seeing that. So I, I'm very appreciative of my parents and what they showed and taught me. And it's driving me to this next chapter of my life to be a father and uh, pass that on, if not more. The last person that I kind of have is uh, my uncle, my great uncle Bobby. So came from the greatest generation time. All right. We, we kind of talked about that generation, you know, with Mellon. My great uncle Bobby was a loud guy, very confident, very strong, loved working with his hands. He loved building small engines, like small engine repair, lawnmowers, weed whackers, like all that sort of stuff. That was his thing. And that's all I knew about my, my great uncle Bobby was he was just loud. He used to call me old timer. When I was a kid, I opened the door and he'd be like, hi, old timer, you know, and I'd, I'd get scared because he was so loud and just like this man, you know, and, uh, but I grew to love him and I didn't know why, like it was something pulling me towards him. I was about 12 years old and we were at a birthday party in the family and I sat out on the porch with him in a rocking chair. You know, it sounds like something out of a book and he was whistling. And I know there's sometimes that people just hear whistling and you're like, Oh, he's just whistling. My great uncle Bobby could whistle like nobody could imagine pure and clear. And I mean, it had emotion to it. And I asked him, I said, uncle Bobby, I was like, where'd you learn how to whistle like that? And around this time, keep in mind, I dedicated myself that I already knew I wanted to go into military service. And he never talked about it. I knew nothing about him prior to, you know, my life. My uncle Bobby was in Korea as a Marine and him and three other Marines were captured and were held as POWs for 11 months and were taken around and living in the mountains in the snow they were interrogated. They weren't allowed to talk, but they were, they had to speak Chinese. They had to communicate all this different, different things. And they didn't allow them to speak in English to each other. So one day, my uncle Bobby, while they're washing clothes by a stream, uh, he started whistling songs from back home and he perfected it. And the other POWs would hear this and just smile and take themselves out of the moment. And then just that little selfless act, he was able to, take them away from where they were in this prison of their mind and everything else that they were going through and remind them of home and loved ones. And we proceeded to have this conversation on the porch for about three hours about military service. Don't glorify war. Why would you ever want to get into a war? Really made me think about this decision that I was in this journey that I was on. 
And in three hours, that's the only conversation I've ever had with him because he passed away shortly after. He taught me about humility, humanity, and humbleness. So whenever, you know, throughout my service, my life, and I think about certain things, I stop and think of my great uncle Bobby and I'm so thankful. And I still wish he was here to have these conversations with as a man and about life and service. Um, but yeah, th those are my three. And uh, I, I appreciate you guys letting me share those. And Mike, how, how old were you when you sat with your uncle Bobby? I was 12 years old. Yeah. All right. So I was 11 when my dad passed and I was just thinking about when you were, when you're saying that, how much that has resonated with you, you know, like it's a, it's a, it, that's, that's, a real parallel between our stories there that the people who aren't here can influence you just as much as the people who are. There's a, there's an, an old quote um, from one of those guys really early in the scouting fraternity. And it talked about a hundred years from now, it will not matter what my bank account was, the sort of house I lived in or the kind of car I drove, but the world may be different because I was important in the life of a boy. That's, that's that, pretty extraordinary. That's Forrest Whitcraft. And like we've all referenced our dad and, and our mums as well have influenced us. And they, these, these influences are going early, really lay down the software. And they don't, you know, like even if they're not here, the fingerprints are still here. You know, like I'm sure your great uncle Bobby would be really proud of the things that you've done in your life, Mike, and the man you are now. You know, and I, I know your dad, Miguel, and my dad, Michael, you know, they share, share the same first name, Raf. They would, they would uh, I have no doubt, would love these types of conversations that we share. Profound stuff, right? Well, I think what's also, uh, I know we have to wrap this up, but I think what's, what we should take away from this is the fact that we, since we received such good mentoring, I hope that people around re recognize who mentored them in their lives and that they also, just as, selflessly just kind of push it forward, right? So um, the things that my dad and Ryan and Aubrey did, which is basically they forced me not to be small. I mean, and I mean, that's kind of the conversation that Ryan had with me, like, hey man, you're offending me because you're being small. And I hope, that I, I hope that I'm doing that enough around other people when I notice that their potential is so much greater than what they're doing. So I hope that everyone who's listening can kind of take some accountability and be like, Hey, these people help me. I need to start helping other people. And I, that's such a, such a strong force when it gets put in motion. And I just, it's something I just kind of wanted to think out loud about. Absolutely, man. Uh, for, for you guys that are listening out there, you know, this, this is a very, uh, I, I really enjoyed this topic today and being able to share this with, with you know, my two brothers here. Uh, I encourage you guys to either reach out, to somebody that's a mentor in your life that you really looked up to and they're still around and write down some things like this, like, like we have, or think about somebody who's passed and really take the qualities and think about how they really influenced your life and think about how you can pay it forward. It's, you're only going to benefit from it. Absolutely, Mark. It's also interesting there, Raf, hearing like firm guidance for young boys. You know, and like I wasn't in the same situation you're in, but both of our fathers, it's a different type of parenting, right? Like I don't parent my, my kids the way that my dad did, but it's a different era. And, uh, you know, there were, I was one of three little gorillas and we were bloody, we, we needed a firm hand. But it's like, 
there's a way you can manifest that now that's still appropriate. Like the firmness is a necessary trait. And I think that often comes from a father, you know, and we, we've, we've had some stuff there talking about the mum and the nurturing and the flea markets and you know what I mean? And the, that, that caring heart to go and uh, show the forgiveness to your dad right at the end, end of his life. I mean, those two halves, like we've talked about this before about the yin yang and how that brings balance. And, and there's, there's something beautiful to be said there. All right, guys. So you've heard from the three of us, some stories about the mentors, the people who influenced us and, you know, they re- that you can hear they, these were the people who shifted the course of our life. And there's many others clearly who influence us. But if you had to boil it down to three, I uh, encourage you to reach out to people in your community. If you can find your mentors, as Mike said, let them know. Like, let these people know before they go what, they, what they've done. And if they have gone, let other people around who know them, other common family members or friends, let them, let them know, share some stories. And as Mike just said, pay it forward. If you can make that difference in the life of a child, that's going to resonate and you might not ever see the outcome, but it's paying it forward. All right, guys. So we'll see you next week. Have a great one. Not your average operator. Look for us on the, the Gmails. You see in the show notes. Share and uh, throw us a message. We love getting them and uh, we'll reply to all of them. Thanks very much, guys.